she just couldn't understand why I couldn't quit. And then I ended up getting linked up with some guys. I don't want to go too in detail with it, but I ended up getting arrested in 2008. And I was charged with violation of the Georgia RICO Act. Essentially, what we were doing is shipping large quantities of marijuana through the mail, through the postal system, and also large quantities of Xanax. Welcome back, everyone, to Comeback Stories. Darren Waller here on a beautiful Saturday morning where I'm at. It's great to be here with these two men that I'm with. I'm on day two of Invisalign, and I got two free hours a day where I don't have to use it. And uh, I'm honored to spend this one hour with the two men on this call, Donnie Starkins, of course, and w- as well as my friend, my par- my brother in recovery, my man, James May. James, how you doing, man? Tell people about yourself a little bit. I'm doing good, man. My name is James. I'm in recovery. I'm coming up on, I think, seven years. Seven years. April 1st of this year will be seven years for me in recovery from a crippling heroin and cocaine addiction. And I currently live in Woodstock, Georgia, which is about 30 miles north of Atlanta. Awesome, man. So let's just hop right in, man. Let's talk about uh, what growing up for you was like. Uh, Tell us where you grew up. What was it like? What were the pressures that you faced? What were uh, the things that, you know, caused you to act the way that you did? What was growing up like for you? Wow. So growing up for me was, it was a little interesting because I got started at a very young age, not necessarily with drugs and alcohol, but just trouble. So I grew up in West Cobb County, Marietta area. I went to an elementary school called Still. Elementary school was right down the street from my house. So I would walk back and forth to school. And it it was, so growing up, my my parents had a lot of love, but not a lot of money. And I'm sure you can relate to how it is in Cobb County, Darren. It's, you know, there's a lot of money here. And so if things don't match up with what you it can feel weird. And I also had very crooked teeth. So I got picked on a little bit in school. I was kind of known as the kid that didn't have a whole lot of money. Government school lunches. My parents had to utilize welfare and everything growing up. A lot of things I didn't understand at the time, but had a profound effect on me. And uh, got in a lot of trouble, believe it or not, in third grade. I set the bathroom on fire. We had uh, taken some lighters to school and set some toilet paper in the bathroom on fire. So my first run-in was third grade, and I actually got suspended for 30 days. Uh, Had to drive around with the fire department and do all these little fire safety course houses and things like that. But as shocking as it may be, it meant nothing to me. Like consequences, it's it's weird. Ever since I was young, nothing ever really scared me. I never really had this, this fear of getting in trouble. I hung out with people who always told on me I was always picking the wrong friends. And that kind of, once that happened in third grade, it was just on from there constant trouble, throwing rocks at houses, throwing rocks at cars, smoking cigarettes. This was back whenever cigarettes weren't behind the counter. So there was some older guys in the neighborhood who would put me up to it and they'd say, hey, go in and steal us a bunch of cigarettes. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. I'm here, a third, fourth grade kid hanging out with kids in middle school and high school in my neighborhood. And they accepted me. And that was all I really wanted. Because when I went to school with my peers, Nobody really accepted me. And so it, it was tough. It really was. I just rebelled. I was like, oh, screw them. They don't want to accept me. Then I'm just going to go over here. And they were just horrible influences and taught me some really 
nasty things at an extremely young age. Yeah, relate to that for sure. You know, just always feel like you had to prove yourself because you never were enough to everyone. You know, that just who you were at your core didn't have the resources to change maybe your teeth or your parents' resources, but you were a person and, and that those things are what people labeled you as not enough or not worthy of more. And I can definitely relate to that. I was acting out in middle school and getting suspended and the principal called my parents every day and just trying to do whatever I could, just going to great lengths to impress people. And it's just like, it's tough that we had to act that way growing up, but it's just a cold world from such a young age. And uh, moving on into the next question, I would ask you, uh, what was the earliest memory of pain for you? Like one that sticks out the most that you felt changed you or put you in a certain mindset? Can I give two or three examples? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'd say my first memory was, I think I was in, I want to say I was in like second or third grade and I'm not going to use her name, but there was a girl that I had this huge crush on. And I remember this was back whenever you used to write a little note. Hey, do you think I'm cute? Or will you go out with me? Circle yes or no. So a friend of mine put me up to it, who I thought was a friend. He put me up to it and he was like, yeah, you should write her a note and ask her if she likes you or whatever. And so I was like, no, man, she's never, we don't even talk or whatever. And he's like, no, she told me she likes you. And I'm like, okay. So I write this note. I think it was actually like Valentine's Day or whatever. It was the Valentine's Day celebration elementary school. And I write her this note and she literally tells me that I have jacked up teeth and she would never go out with me. Like she would never be my girlfriend. And I'm like looking at it. So then I say something to my buddy and he just like laughs about it. It's like a group of kids. They all laugh about it. And uh, man, like I was hurt. I remember I went home and like I cried and just like that thought of embarrassment. I was like super embarrassed. And it's funny because that kind of stuck with me for a long time, especially with relationships. And I always find it crazy how we perceive pain and we perceive trauma and something as simple as that to somebody else. They might say, oh, that's nothing, whatever. It doesn't, it's not even a blip on their radar. But the way that my mind and my brain works, it was like, man, that was just traumatizing. Everybody's laughing at me. The girl says no. And I'm just like, oh, like, like you were saying earlier, I'm not enough and I'll never be enough. So that was like my first, like real experience with just humiliation, embarrassment, whatever. And then the next one. There was a kid who lived in my neighborhood and he had a little birthday party one night where he had like a bunch of the kids from school come over and I was outside. I was like out back, like jumping on the trampoline or something. My parents had this chain link fence that went all around the house and they like came by my house and they were like standing at the gate and they were just saying just mean things to me, just making fun of me, laughing at me and crazy story, which kind of led up to a lot of what happened with me once I got into high school. I had an uncle who found a bunch of land in Montana or Wyoming or something and bought it. And I don't know if if it was like, my uncle's a scam artist. And so he found all this land and they found all this natural gas on it and they were going to mine all this natural gas on it. My family was like, oh, this is the golden goose. We're going to be set. We're going to be taken care of, whatever. My grandmother had given the money or something. Long story short, It never happened. So in that moment, my parents are really thinking this is going to happen. So I was with my mom one day and she was driving around this neighborhood, like looking at these houses. Now these houses are like 
$350,000 houses compared to my parents' house, which was probably $60,000, $80,000 at the time. And uh, this kid saw me in the neighborhood and he, whenever they came by my house and were like, stand at the gate, he's like, oh yeah, I saw you in my neighborhood. What were you doing? And I was like, oh, my mom was looking at a house and I'll never forget it. Like the kid literally looked at me and was like, dude, you're poor. You can't live in my neighborhood. Like you could never, your parents can't afford to live in my neighborhood. Like you're poor. And I was like, wow, in front of everybody. And that kind of crushed me. And it'll play into my story a little bit if we get there. But that was why I did a lot of things that I did. Those types of kids were a target to me once I got older and, and started to dive into selling drugs. Yes, it was a way to make money. But essentially, I had this evil plan in my head that I was going to destroy those kids. I was going to rip them off. I was going to, you know, sell them fake drugs. I was going to get them addicted. Like I wanted them to experience some sort of pain. And that was the best way I knew how to at the time. And so as sick as it is, I start to realize like what my ulterior motives were in doing all that. That was why I did what I did. I was like, I'm going to go after them and I'm just going to ruin their life. They ruined mine. And it was kind of like a, a revenge plan. But like unconsciously at first, but it worked out, right? And unfortunately, there was a lot of people who I caused a lot of harm to and inflicted a lot of pain on. Uh, a lot of their own choices were involved too. And they, you know, chose to do a lot of that, but sickening like now, like when I think about it, but that was my goal. Yeah, man, we can deal with the pain that we bring upon ourselves. It's tough, like, especially at that age when, you know, that pain is something that we didn't even ask for. Like you were going out your way, trying to do anything to those kids that were bringing those words and that negativity upon you. But we try to go about life the best we can coping with that pain. And without the knowledge that we have now, it's tough to really go in the direction that we want to go. But for the next question, I want to ask you, I mean, look back, who was the first teacher that you had in your life that really shaped and molded your character at the time, whether it was good or bad, who do you think was that first teacher for you? Oof, I might get a little emotional when I talk about it, but I'd probably say my grandfather. And he's still kicking now. I don't get to spend as much time with him because I'm so busy now as I probably should. But uh, yeah, I'd say I'd probably say my grandfather. He worked for Ace Hardware for 50 years. He was an executive for Ace Hardware. And just everything about him, man, just like his charisma, the way he treats people, he's just a really kind individual. And everybody's equal to him. He talks well, successful, built a good life for himself. And my grandmother, when, in 1996, my grandmother, who's now passed, she suffered a stroke and an aneurysm and several strokes and several aneurysms. And she couldn't even walk. And for 20, I'd say 20 years, 25 years, my grandfather took care of her like hand and foot, never complained about it, like nothing. And that was one of the biggest things that drove me to want to get sober is I would look at him and I'd be like, man, after everything he's dealt with and been through, and he still shows up every single day, no matter what. And that, that had a serious, profound effect on me. And the beautiful thing is my grandmother actually got to see me sober whenever she did pass. And I was there. I got to roll her body out of the house and the whole bit. And sorry, I'm getting emotional, but my, my grandparents, I called them big mama and big daddy. 
And they, they were as much of parents to me as like my real parents were. And so it's sad that she's not here. I stopped my grandfather. Maybe this is some self-discovery. I probably need to spend a lot more time with him than I have. But that's my first real teacher. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks ahead, for sharing that. I appreciate your, this is, you're an, an inspiration to me right now. This is the essence of why Darren and I started this podcast to have real talk, to talk about emotions. To me, this is strength at its finest. Where I know for me personally, I, this isn't the way I was raised. I was raised to to fight through the pain, never let him see you sweat, don't show emotions, and right. to see you so real and so raw, which my own work still to this day is to be more vulnerable, cry more and do these things. It's inspiring to see you real and raw, and it's exactly why we're doing this. Can you talk a little bit more? Your story sounds... In the recovery world, we share our stories. It sounds pretty epic. Can you just give us some context? We usually typically talk about what our life was like, what happened, and what our life is like now, but just maybe the the Cliff Notes version of at least what it was like, and maybe to lead up to what happened. Okay. I'd say as far as my drug use was concerned, I started off, I think, like seventh or eighth grade. I started off smoking marijuana, which at the time seemed super cool. I remember the first time I got caught smoking marijuana, I was actually outside my parents' house and they had these windows that opened from the top and the bottom. And I was outside talking to this girl on the phone, smoking a joint under the window. And I didn't realize the top of the window was open and it, all the smoke is just flooding into my parents' house. And my mom picks up the phone. This is back in house phone days when you used to talk to the girls all night. And my mom picks up the phone and is, James, I smell it. And I'm like, oh. So that was the first time I got caught and my mom kind of got a little upset with me, but it goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Consequences really didn't mean anything. When I got to ninth grade, it was my first introduction with Oxycontin. My ninth grade year actually went on spring break with a bunch of guys. I started doing Oxycontin, got super addicted to Oxycontin, super addicted to cocaine. That was my combination. That was what I really liked to do. My grades were flunking. Basically, it was like, oh, I'm going to drop out of school and do online school. And probably my junior year in high school was probably my best. I played lacrosse in high school. Just couldn't stay out of trouble. Kept getting suspended and everything else. But my junior year, I actually held it together. And it's, it's funny because I was taking Adderall. I was prescribed um, by a doctor, but I was taking Adderall, depression medication, and that was probably the best I ever did. 11th to 12th grade, I did really good. My grades got up. And then my senior year, man, I went downhill big time. I sold a lot of drugs, essentially. I used to sell a lot of weed and a lot of pills. And I ended up getting caught my senior year with some weed at school. And I got suspended and had to go to this TLC thing just to graduate and end up graduating. And I was planning to go to college. And I actually got pulled over on the way to my senior spring break. I had a quarter pound of weed in the car. And so I ended up going to jail. Call him. My mom comes, bails me out. And that pattern continued to happen. Constantly going to jail for minor stuff. Uh, I did have a credit card fraud charge in there that broke it. I like, went over to go see some girl or whatever. Nobody was home. So we thought it'd be a great idea to rummage through a purse and see what we could find. And that was stupid. But a lot of marijuana... A lot of marijuana use and a lot of marijuana arrests and uh, spent a little bit of time locked up, tried to go to college, didn't really work out. I had a girlfriend at the time who was 
you know, on me and she just couldn't understand why I couldn't quit. And then I ended up getting linked up with some guys. I don't want to go too in detail with it, but I ended up getting arrested in 2008 and I was charged with violation of the Georgia RICO Act. Essentially what we were doing is shipping large quantities of marijuana through the mail, through the postal system, and also large quantities of Xanax from a South American country. The The cops did a full-blown investigation. My phone was tapped and it was just, it was just the whole thing. And I remember I was at my house and the cops were watching and I drove out anyway. They arrested me. I show up. It's all these people. And I find out exactly what is going on. And that was my first attempt to try to get sober was after that because I was afraid of court and it didn't work. I tried to do it on my own. I tried to do it on my own. I tried to rely on self-knowledge and self-will. had no connection to anybody. I was selfish, self-centered to the core. And I continued on that path. I was a heroin and cocaine IV user. So I was doing that. I burned every bridge in my life. I stole from everybody, took advantage of everybody, manipulated everybody. I was literally the guy that you just, you didn't want over. Don't hang out with that guy. Even the drug addicts were like, don't hang out with that guy. So life got really dark and I would just lock myself in a room for probably three, four days at a time and just shoot cocaine, shoot heroin. And it got nasty. I started to get, I was probably like 120 pounds. And to put in context, I'm about 180, 190 now. I was just, I was knocking on death's doorstep. And it's funny. That was when I developed my first real resentment towards God. Because there were nights I would literally pray that I wouldn't wake up. I would do such large amounts and large quantities that the fact that I didn't die is a miracle. But I would pray. I'd pray, God, take me out. I can't do this anymore. And I don't know. I just kept going, kept going. And that was, that was pretty much what it was like without going into too gruesome of detail. But spent, I'd say over that time, I spent about three total years locked up probation violations and and all that and didn't spend a whole lot of time on the street but when i was on the street i was screwing off and and yeah so yeah what would you say with with all of that just obviously you're sober now but if you look back on that what was the biggest thing holding you back obviously you didn't know it at the time but looking back and just hearing that to maybe to somebody out there right now that can relate to being in this place of despair, what was the biggest thing holding you back at the time? Wow, we might get real deep right here. So I would say, honestly, the biggest thing holding me back was the truth, right? The truth about who I was, the truth about what was going on with me. I had this idea of it was everybody else's fault. It's my parents didn't make a lot of money. The cops keep picking on me. My girlfriend's always up my rear end and bugging me about this. And and none of that was true. I was making the choice to continue getting up every day and doing what I was doing. I, I was making a conscious choice. Now, did I have the power to make a different choice? No. I, I could not get that power from thin air and I could not get that power from myself, which I was trying to for so long. And I really wanted to prove everybody wrong, especially as it pertained to the 12-step program. I wanted to prove everybody wrong. It don't work. 
You can work as many steps as you want. You can go to as many meetings as you want. You can have all the mentors in the world. and It's not going to work. Like y'all are idiots. Y'all drank the Kool-Aid, whatever. And I was really just fighting it, man. I was at odds with the world. I was just butting heads with the universe every single day. And one of the biggest things that I came to grips with is whenever I was young, I think I was like six or seven years old, I was molested by a babysitter. And that was something I had never talked about. It was something that at the time I kind of knew what was going on was wrong. And I think my mom had a, a little bit of an idea, but I thought I felt dirty from that. You know what I mean? Something that was out of my control, not a choice that I made, something that I'm, I'm six years old. I might've been, I might've been five actually, but I knew that what was happening was inappropriate, but I didn't know what to say. didn't know what to do. And I never talked about it. I just hid from it. I started to act out in various ways that if it wasn't drugs and alcohol, it was women. If it wasn't women, it was something else. It was gambling. It was eating. It was nicotine. It was like all these things. It, the reality was what happened to me wasn't my fault. And I thought that it was my fault. I thought I was to blame for it. And I finally did a little bit of therapy and processed through it. I realized that was a big thing holding me back too. But to sum up, I just say just the truth, right? The truth about how all this works, the truth about what's going on with me and what my thought process is. And once I started to rely more on God and less of myself, things started to change for me, like going with the flow, just floating down the river instead of trying to swim up river all the time. What would you say? So with a whole lot of pain, emotional pain and actual legit trauma that you've been through, Everybody has a rock bottom. Everybody has a lowest point. What was your lowest point? My lowest point was right before I got sober. My mom, God bless her soul, she would go to war for me if I needed her to. She's always been my biggest fan. She's always supported me no matter what, no matter how many times I'd hurt her or went against her. And But I remember I was actually sitting at this meeting house and I think Darren knows it, the Freedom Club. And mm -hmm. there's a there's a parking lot right there. It's funny. There's actually a, a meeting house on top of a, a liquor store. And I was sitting in that parking lot with a friend and I had lied to my mom that night about I needed some cash because I was going to go to this meeting. I'm going to get sober this time. I'm going to do this. And I had constantly been lying to my mom. I actually stole her credit card and rented a rental car from my drug dealer. And was exchanging the drug dealer for the daily rate of the car for that amount of drugs every day. And so I just, I got to the point where that wasn't getting me there. About a hundred bucks. It wasn't getting me there. So I lied to my mom. I was literally sitting in this parking lot. And me and a friend were getting high. And we were just sitting there. I was looking at the meeting. And I had gone to that meeting countless times. I knew a lot of the people coming in and out. And before that, I had a little bit of time sober. Actually, I went to a treatment center and did all right. But I was sitting there looking and it was weird. I like, no, no kidding. I told my friend, I said, dude, something's going to happen. I was like, I'm either going to die like very soon, like tomorrow, or God's going to do something powerful in my life. And he was like, oh, dude, shut up, man. Like, just enjoy your high, man. Kind of like that. And I'm just like, no, nah, man, I just had this feeling. 
And the very next day I was with the guy who I bought my drugs from and he actually had wrecked that rental car. So we took it to a little side shop to get fixed and a whole deal happened. They're pulling out guns and shooting and they rammed into the car and this is right on Powder Springs Road. And I remember I pulled over and the cop showed up and they found a pistol in the car. Now, take in mind, I'm a convicted felon. I'm on probation the whole bit. They let me go. So any right person in their right mind would be like, go home. You've had enough. You got lucky. Just take your money and run. But I went back to the dope house. Now my car is wrecked. My trunk and everything is done. And I remember sitting there and I was like, I was so mad at myself for still being back there. And I didn't have any strength or any power to leave and do anything other than try to get more, try to get high again. So I get in my car and I'm driving down the road. And unbeknownst to me that the police were watching all of this the whole time, the guy that who I was getting all my drugs from was under surveillance and it was in a whole nother Rico case. However, I'm not involved in it. I'm just a user. And the police pulled me over and they knew me from my previous thing. And I recognized the guy and I literally just looked at him. I said, man, I need help. Before we even said anything, before he said license, registration, the whole bit, I literally looked at him. I was like, man, I really need help, man. He's really, what's going on? I'm like, I can't stop shooting up. I'm I'm in bad shape, brother. I need something. I need some help. He's all right, get out of the car. We did the whole thing. He's me and him start talking. We knew each other from my previous case and he's still on probation. And I remember right then in that moment, I didn't care what happened. I didn't care if I went to prison for the rest of my life. I just didn't want to get high anymore. And I was ready. And that was like the most, that was my rawest, most rock bottom moment ever. Mm. And they searched my car and found some paraphernalia, charged me with it, which I did not expect. I was hoping I was going to get a freebie. But yeah, I went to jail and believe it or not, after about two weeks, after the withdrawals wore off, I woke up. And I finally felt free, which is kind of crazy because, you know, you're locked up. But in that moment, that first day I woke up and could actually eat, that was the freest I ever felt. It's amazing. And I think for any alcoholic addict listening can clearly relate to the story, but I think even more so, and this is why people like you, James and Darren, who are are sharing their stories publicly, why it's so inspiring. Because I think at this point in all of our lives, somebody, we've all been affected by addiction or alcoholism. So to, to share the rawness and like really what's at stake and the insanity of the disease, right? Where some people would say, how could you not just surrender? But that is why it's a disease and the power it can have over us. A lot of this, even around our stories, if I think back to my own stories and listening to stories and the pain that you went through as a child, I always say the only story that matters is the one that we tell ourselves. And a lot of times it's those stories when we get stuck in the story or when we haven't owned our wound, we can't really write the ending because the wound has hijacked our life and we're living in the reality of that false narrative. But like for you... What was like the story you had to stop telling yourself to start telling your own comeback story? I say the biggest, there's a book I like to read 
And it talks about a farmer, right? And this farmer comes out of his cellar and the tornado has just come through and just destroyed his entire home. And he comes out of the cellar, out of this, the storm cellar or whatever, and looks at his wife and he says, hey, ma, ain't it grand the wind stopped blowing? Hmm. And the biggest, to answer your question was, I thought drugs and alcohol was my problem. And it wasn't. Drugs and alcohol was the solution to my problem. It was what I used to cope. It was what I used to connect. It was what I used to feel accepted. It was what I used to not feel emotion and what I used to not feel pain because I was so scared of those things based on some things that happened to me early on, traumatic experiences. And uh, it's like that book also leads into talking about the path of reconstruction. I used to think that, oh man, if I can put two weeks clean together, everybody should forgive me. I've patched it all up. This is what y'all wanted. Y'all wanted me to get sober. Mom, look, I'm sober now. But the reality was, is I had to change my pattern and the two weeks sober. I mean, for anybody who is two weeks sober today, congratulations. That is amazing. But based on where I was at, they didn't know if I was lying or if I wasn't. So to, to my mom, she's two weeks sober. That ain't nothing. I need you to really prove like that you're going to change. You put the drugs and alcohol down, good for you. But what are you going to do different? Because I can't keep doing this with you. So I guess the path of reconstruction and starting to heal the wounds, that was, I didn't realize that I was going to have to experience more pain to get to peace because it was a lot of people that I owed some amends to. It was a lot of debt that I had incurred. There was a lot of things that I had to fix in order to get to the other side and just stopping drugs and alcohol wasn't going to get me there. I had to change my character. I had to I had to find a belief in God of some sort. I had to find connection with other people that were doing the same things I was. I can't do it alone. None of this we can do alone. No matter where you look, I and that's the biggest misconception I think people, you know, oh, I got this. You look everywhere. Look at football. You see a star athlete, but without the coaches, without the team, without the agent, without the everything, everybody plays this crazy part. And it's the same in life anywhere you go. You have to be connected to people. And I truly feel that if God didn't intend for us to be connected, why would he make so many of us? It's connection is a real thing. And yeah, so a little all over the place. Sorry, but that's I guess my answer is the drugs and alcohol, just stopping using drugs and alcohol wasn't the answer. I had to fix everything. What has that turned into? So tell us, give us some hope, give maybe some people out there some hope of what your life is like now. So my life, if my life today is completely different. So to give you a little backstory, I used to collect sneakers and whenever I had went to jail and finally got sober. I lived at this homeless shelter slash jail transition ministry and started to work for them. And I got this huge passion for wanting to help people. So in 2016, I sold my entire sneaker collection and I started a sober living program for guys. And I basically made it my mission to help others. And it was a slow start. I, man, I plugged in the community heavy. I knew that the only way that I could really do this thing is if I gave as much of myself as I could every single day. And it goes back to the adage, you can only keep it if you give it away. 
so I started that and man, it's just, it has blown up. It has blown up anywhere from 50 to 60 people at a time. We've gone on and started a treatment center, which I'm wearing the, the hoodie right now, but I just, I give my life to people, man. I give them everything and I, I want to help. I know I can't help everybody, but God forbid, I still try. And that's sometimes it's my biggest weakness. Life is pretty amazing, man. I don't have to wake up and think about chasing a high. I don't have to wake up and scam anybody. All I got to do is wake up and pray and do my deal and get my day started. And I live off the natural highs of seeing people get it. I got a lot of guys in my program right now, a lot of women too, that you get to see them every day. The light bulb turn on and it, it makes it all worth it. I do a lot of recovery stuff outside of that as well, which it, it could look boring to some people, but the amount of peace I have today, the amount of trust I have in, in God and, and the control, the controller of the universe, if you will, is unbelievable. Just, man, I have a beautiful wife which I never thought I would have, who supports me unconditionally and doesn't get upset when the 4 a.m. calls come in of some guy who's, you know, just got kicked out of the hospital and is sitting there on the curb and has nowhere to go and no money and nothing to eat. And I got to get in the car and I got to, you know, drive to the hospital at 4 a.m. and pick the guy up, go sit with him at Waffle House and tell him my story and buy him a meal and try to help him find a place where he could go and get showered up. And it's, it's that type of stuff that, Getting sober, when I was getting sober, I'd, I'm not going to say I didn't want any part of it, but I would have never thought that's what it was. And I I have a really good mentor of mine that tells me service work is the most important aspect of your life today. And if something is convenient, nine times out of 10, it's not service work. It's that inconvenient moment of somebody's wife calls at 2.30 in the morning because her husband's having a seizure because he's going through alcohol withdrawal. And somehow or another, they found my number, called me, I was able to get it. Or a good friend of mine called me one morning and it's like, hey, I'm probably going to blow my brains out. And I'm like, whoa, get up. It was funny because he called me five times in a row. My wife was like, who is calling you? <laughs> and it was just it was a weird moment, but and he's sober today. I think Darren knows who I'm talking about, but it's just unbelievable. It's like that stuff gives me so much fulfillment and peace and keeps me connected and never forgetting what it was like. But life is good, man. It still struggles here and there. It's a lot of pressure on you. I'm sure y'all can relate, but just, man, it's you start to finally see the green in the trees, the blue in the sky. You feel the peace from the wind little things, little subtle things throughout the day that you never would have paid attention to. But it just, when you start to see it, you're like, wow, like this is life. And this is amazing. Yeah, man, that's just a, one of the most incredible transformations uh, I've had, ever heard. It's an honor uh, to be your friend, man. I don't even know what to say at this point, but moving into the next question, I know that I don't even have to ask you. I know that gratitude is a big part of, you know, who you are today. The transformation that you've made and guys like us we're doing well now and you don't have to worry about money you don't have to worry about certain things and you have a lot of nice things material things but our definition of gratitude changes when we were younger i just want to ask you what are you most grateful for today 
Uh, I'd say I'm most grateful for the guy that wants to get sober or the girl that wants to get sober. I'm grateful for being able to be a light in somebody's life, man. I'm grateful for, I could say all glory to God. That's probably who I'm most grateful for today because he's given me everything and more. He's given me an ability to reach people. He's given me an ability to use my story to help people. There's no greater feeling than being somewhere and talking to a guy who's struggling and he wants help. That is probably, that's what keeps me sober. Without that, I don't know. Maybe I'm sober. Maybe I'm not. I don't know. It's hard to say, but I can tell you that is the gas that fills my tank is whenever that, when that guy comes up to you and says, Hey, you know, my name, if you're at a meeting or something, guy comes up and says, Hey man, when you shared, I really liked what you said, man. It's my first day sober. You know, I'm still struggling. My life's falling apart. Boom. Hey man, let's get in the car. Let's go to Waffle House and just sit down, drink some coffee. Oh, I don't have any money. Don't worry, man. I got you. Just let's just go and talk. And then you get to walk that guy through all the stages of recovery that he goes through and you're there and you get to introduce him to your network and your people. And you see that person blossom. That is the most, that is the most amazing feeling. I think that life gives you right there. And when you see that man, it just fills you with gratitude. You realize just, man, you realize how good God is somebody who's hopeless who can find hope and start to rewrite their story amazing you've you said a ton of motivating inspiring empowering things today but let's we ask all of our guests to if you basically if you could you get one 140 text or character text to send to yourself from the future what would that text say or that one tweet say oh man it probably Oh man, that's tough. I guess just keep going. Don't lose the drive. Stay humble. Continue to practice every principle that you've learned thus far. Continue to grow. And don't put a limit on what God can do in your life. Hmm. Don't think for a second that God has abandoned you. If it seems like God isn't there, he's there. Maybe I'm not listening. And keep trying to reach people. Just keep trying to reach people no matter what it takes. So I know that's probably not 140 characters, but it's maybe the Cliff's Notes version. And uh, I love how you say not putting a limit on anything that God can do. And that's a perfect transition to the next question. I love when you talked about in your story how you wanted to stop and you knew what was holding you back, but you just couldn't do it or you didn't know how to go about doing it. And for somebody that's in that position now that is aware of what's holding them back and knows it, but doesn't know how to pull that trigger, doesn't know what to do about it yet. Uh, what would you recommend to them? What would you say they should do first? I know it may sound a little cliche, but don't be afraid to ask for help deal. It's, I get a lot of calls every day. And the biggest thing, the, the thing I find most funny is I get phone calls from people that call and pretend to be somebody else, but they're really calling for themselves, but they're not quite at a position in their life where they're willing to fully admit that they have a problem. I think the biggest thing that holds people back is this judgment, right? The world's very judgmental. There's a lot of ideas out there floating around that 
if you're an addict or if you're an alcoholic, that you're a bad person. And as you can see, it doesn't define who you are. It's just a process that we have to go to. And you're not alone. Don't ever feel alone. Don't ever feel ashamed. And if you do, let's talk about it. Let's figure out why. Let's see, let's get down deep into some feelings real quick. Yeah, that yeah, that's a fully loaded question. But yeah, just get rid of that. What do they call it? I can't remember. I can't think of the name of it. But put anything and everything you think you know about addiction to the side and just let's go on a journey. Yes, sir. Yeah, I think your words and people like you stepping up and, and sharing your story um, reminds us and people that we're not alone. We're not alone we, when we can't do it alone. We're never alone. And I think that's one of the many, but one of the two biggest ones for me in recovery, the lessons, the tools is connection. I always say the opposite of addiction is connection. So that connection is a powerful piece. And you talked a lot about it. The other one is service. What a blessing that our messed up past, all of ours here, has led us to this beautiful moment talking together, which that still blows my mind when I think about some of the decisions that I made through my mess and my addiction. But it's a beautiful thing. And I couldn't do it alone. I had to humble myself and ask for help. So our our last question we always land on, which is a good segue, is you didn't do it alone. So who's that one person that gets your comeback story shout out? I would say the the one person would probably be one of my best friends in the whole entire world would be my boy, Spencer. I originally met him the first time I tried to get sober and he stayed sober. However, I did not. And man, he never turned his back on me, always supported me always reached out to me. Like every time I was in jail, he'd reach out to my mom, see how I'm doing. And he's at, he's actually who I started all this with. He's, he's my business partner and everything that we do. And also my recovery partner. And just, it's very rare that you find somebody that you've only known for five, six months. Cause that was all the time that I knew him at the time. And even me not being there, being around or still out there using whatever, he never, he never gave up on me. And it's funny. I burned every bridge in the world, but that was the one bridge that I never burned. And we've done some amazing things together. We get to reach a lot of people, help a lot of people. He's just as involved in service and working with guys as I am. And it's just, it's incredible what we've been able to do and the amount of people we've been able to reach and help. And I couldn't have done it without him. We both play our own little roles, but I'd have to say shout out to Spencer Stein. Spencer, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, James, thank you so much for coming on here, spending this time with us, uh, sharing your story with the world, man. It's a, it's an incredible story. I love you, man. Appreciate you being here, dog. Just thank you, man. Man, I want to yeah, say man. thank you guys for the opportunity. Like I was saying, service is, is the biggest thing. And without it, I'm nothing. Without the person that needs to hear it, I'm nothing. So it's, uh, it's truly an honor to be on here with you guys. And it's always love on this side, man. That. Oh, yeah. Likewise. Yes, sir. Yeah, James, same, man. I just want to acknowledge you for, for the story, your story, your rawness, your vulnerability, and inspiration and fire in what you're doing right now. It's a beautiful thing to watch somebody turn 
their mess into their message. And it gives those hope that maybe are feeling a little hopeless right now. So I think we'll just end that. I'm confident that between us three, if anybody out there is struggling, hey, you can just email us at comebackstories at gmail.com and we will find somebody to help you. So with that, we're going to close. Thanks again, James, and I hope you all have a beautiful day. Awesome. Thank you. This is what I represent. Staying true till I'm six down. It might take a little bit, but every king's going to get crowned. 